So the name of today's sermon is Who Got Served? I'm Chris, by the way. If I don't know you, if I've not met you, I'm Chris, and I'd love to meet you. I've been around for a while, and I've not been around for a while, and I've been around for a while, and now I'm around. So here we go. The name of today's sermon is Who Got Served? The central question that we're going to look at is whether, as a believer of Jesus Christ, I am called to serve God, and if so, why and how? Or whether God, Jesus, and the church are here to serve me. If you've been around church culture for any amount of time, the answer to these questions might seem obvious to you. In fact, some folks might be offended that I'm asking these questions in the first place this morning. However, when you observe folks around church culture and what they actually do, it's not as clear that these are mute points. The truth, I think, and the answer to our questions lies in how we each individually understand who God is and who we think we are in relationship to him. So before we get started, let's pray and just ask that the Lord would speak loudly today. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to worship you here in this place, to be part of a community that is your church, a community that is your body, a community that is your temple being built up. Jesus, and we thank you, Lord, that you speak to your people, that you love your people, and that you are present amongst your people. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people this morning, that they would hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that you would increase as I decrease, and that you would resound in the hearts and minds of your fellowship. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So to focus this investigation, we're going to look at the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. One morning, almost 16 years ago, my wife, Christy, and I decided we were going to try out church. Neither of us were particularly religious. She was the prodigal daughter of the American Baptist persuasion, and I was a backslid dropout from the Catholic Church. But we wanted to try out church because in our two short years of marriage, we'd come to the conclusion that there must be something more to life and marriage than what we'd found up to that point. Don't get me wrong, we loved each other but we discovered that it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to make hard times easier or arguments less frequent. It wasn't enough to erase the wrong words spoken in a a moment of passion or to heal the painful experiences that came from the loss of loved ones that we'd experienced. So this was our Hail Mary pass, no pun intended. We were desperate and looking for a solution. So one Sunday morning about 9 a.m., rolling out of bed, I picked up the phone and dialed the local church. We had previously decided which church we'd try because Chrissy was familiar with one that she'd seen on the college campus at Cal. When the church receptionist answered, I asked, what time is your next mass? There was a brief pause, and she said, well, our next service is at 10 a.m. And about that time, she was probably thinking that I was looking for a way out, and I was because I was thinking to myself, what does she mean by service? I just want to go to this church thing. you know." And so she said, It's at 10 a.m., and you can still make it. And that was the first time I believe God spoke to me. So we both threw on our clothes, jumped in the car, and we got to church by about 10.10. We cautiously snuck into the sanctuary, putting on our best invisibility, crawled into two seats as high up in the balcony as we can get and far away from people as we could get, and that became our roost for the next several months. Within the year, Chrissy and I would both personally meet our Savior, Jesus. Over the next 16 years... We would surrender our lives, our marriage, our wills, our finances, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, 
and even our children to him. To this day, we continue to find things in our lives that we neglected to pass on to him, and eventually, gladly, we do that. Now, if that all sounded kind of extreme and culty and weird, let me assure you, our children live with us. We love them dearly, and in spite of homeschooling, they are reasonably well-behaved, well-adjusted, and extremely well-socialized. We don't live in a commune. I don't own a gun. And I don't really have any religious motivation for having long hair or short hair or earrings or tattoos or any other ceremonial form of extremism. What and how we've learned to surrender to Jesus to date has been our reasonable response to a loving Lord, God, Savior, and friend who not only showed us that there was more to life and marriage, but there is more to his love and mercy than we can grasp or experience In our lifetime, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In these words, the Apostle Paul illustrates for us the heart of the Good Shepherd, a pastor's desire for his flock, Christ's desire for his church to be in the company of himself and God the Father. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. As Jesus passionately prays to his Father for us to be where he is, Paul is pleading with the Roman Christians to not underestimate the depth and the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. He desperately does not want them to miss out on the fullness of the experience and relationship that God now offers them through Jesus. In this one verse, Paul begins his words with, I beseech you, therefore. So he is pleading with them based on some previous information, therefore. Something was spoken of prior to this verse, and that's what he's referencing. That's This whole verse is in a response to that. An easier way to hear this would be, therefore, brethren, I beseech you. He's begging them to respond to what he has just shared with them. So what did he just shared? In Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul lays out Israel's rejection of the gospel and how, as a result of this, a way was made for the Gentiles, the Romans, us, including his Roman audience, to receive salvation and be in relationship with God. Romans chapter 11, verses 30 through 32 says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient. He's talking about Israel. That through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. He's talking about Israel's rejection of the gospel. So Israel's rejection of the gospel is God's mercy for the Gentiles. The sin of one group makes a way for the merciful blessing of another. This is a huge, crazy concept. So big that Paul busts out in spontaneous worship on the spot. He just goes nuts. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. It's incredible, this thing that God has done. One group sins, the other group is blessed. But have you ever seen anything like this, where sin makes a way for blessing? The key idea here is about how you see things. 
Paul talks about Israel as being blind. And as a result, he says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Have you ever been in a situation where someone's sin created an opportunity for someone else to be a blessing? Or where a great injustice is done requiring compassionate souls to respond with love and a desire to see justice restored? In Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Every act of compassionate kindness made in the name of Jesus is a mystery of God's sovereignty and grace. Not just the act itself, but the condition which required it in the first place. That's the crazy concept. In the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses to be a prophet and deliverer to the Hebrews who have been forced into slavery by the Egyptians. However, rather than pulling the Hebrews out of Egypt, in chapter 7, verse 3, God says to Moses, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So if God can harden Pharaoh's heart, presumably he can unharden it as well, right? This could have been easy. But ultimately, this wasn't just about delivering the Hebrews from Egypt. It was about the birth of the nation of Israel. But why did God do this? He did it because of a promise he made to Moses' ancestor, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Who will Abraham be a blessing to? In Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God again speaks to Abraham, saying, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. All the nations of the earth will be blessed, because Abraham just obeyed God. And yet, part of God's program for delivering this blessing to the nations involved pouring out his judgments upon Egypt. Judgments brought about because of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 4 through 5, the Lord goes on to say, But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, before I send you off thinking that God is just some cruel, unjust, cosmic player, let me clarify one thing. Pharaoh's heart was already hard toward the Hebrews. He had already rejected Moses and Aaron's pleas for deliverance. And to teach them all a lesson, he gave the Hebrews an extra workload. He slapped them down when Moses came before them and asked to deliver the Hebrews. So God wasn't somehow suggesting to Pharaoh or to the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day that their hearts should just be hard. He wasn't brainwashing them or compromising their free will. There was already rebellion and pride in their attitudes. God just came along and firmed up their hard hearts by carrying through with his will. So this isn't a picture of the Lord manipulating people for his purposes. This is a picture of God's sovereignty. The Lord knew ahead of time that sin, rebellion, and pride would separate these people from the working of his will. And so this was factored into his plan. How often has our own sin 
kept us from recognizing God's will at work right before our eyes. But as Paul previously warned, lest we should be wise in our own opinion, responding to God's will is not a deep work of insight or intellect or the working of some mysterious knowledge. Right? We can't boast because some of us did respond to God's will. We can't look at the people who didn't and, you know, those Pharisees? Oh, silly Pharisees. That Pharaoh, why didn't he get it? You know? Our friend who appears to be backslidden, you know, it's not our place to judge them because our responding to God's will is not something that we can boast about. It's not our work. It's an act of simple obedience, not of our intellect, not of our skills, not of our ability, not even of our own experience. It's simple obedience. Abraham obeyed God. Moses obeyed God. Jesus modeled this best when he said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. It's from uh, John chapter 5, verse 30, if you want to look it up. So Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice that not all Israel was blind. After all, who was Paul? Paul says, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Most of the early Christians were Jews. But by God's plan, there is a period of time up unto the fullness of the Gentiles, where much of Israel will remain blind to the gospel. However, after that point, the text goes on to say, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This last part features two prophecies from Isaiah, anticipating both the redemption and the restoration of Israel. Paul then goes on to say, in verses 29 through 32, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God yet have now obtained mercy through their, Israel's, disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. At which point, Paul does a spontaneous worship explosion and falls on his face. I mean, that's the crazy concept. God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. That word in the Greek language is translated as without repentance or unregretted. The idea here is that God will not change his mind. His promises are good and trustworthy in spite of what we've done. And getting back to what was so blowing Paul's mind, he said that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. God has shown us his mercy through Jesus Christ by making a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to participate in the same fellowship with God enjoyed by God's chosen people. And if that wasn't enough, because we have been shown this mercy, we are now part of God's plan to redeem and restore Israel. How? (laughs) Ultimately, by acts of simple obedience. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the Hebrew tradition, according to the instruction given to Israel from God through Moses, sacrifice offered for atonement of sins or for some cleansing act were typically slain animals or material goods like grain or wine. But that isn't what Paul is talking about here. Jesus has already paid the final sacrifice for our sins by the offering of his body on the cross. Everything that we do now is in response to that. What Paul is saying is that we should offer our living, breathing, vital bodies, our heart, mind, soul, and strength freely to the Lord as a response to his great love and as a statement to an unbelieving world. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. See, as believers of Jesus, we are not conformed to the way the world necessarily sees things. We have an ancient and true standard for ideas such as morality, ethics, and justice based on the collected wisdom of God, inspired by his Holy Spirit and captured in the scriptures. Living this out is being willing to share hard truths and love with our neighbors. Living this out is standing in the gap for those who have no voice who are suffering injustice daily. Living this out is simply honoring our commitments, making our yes a yes and our no a no, and paying our debts. Living this out means standing firm in a marriage, staying loyal to friends, and loving those who hate you. Jesus continues saying, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Remember that bit about the Gentiles somehow being part of God's mercy for Israel? I believe this is our part in it. These passages come from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. They are part of a larger set of standards for living that Jesus described for those who are his disciples. And as his disciples, as those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who are saved according to his good works and grace, and who live according to his guidance and commandments and the inner workings of his Holy Spirit, there should be a difference in our lives that is observable to people around us. That difference should be a light which emanates from our daily comings and goings. Not a literal light, but rather something about our lives that illuminates the truth of being known by a loving and personal God. It would be cool if it was a literal light, though. That would be easier. But God has empowered us to do good works. And so we must always point back to our Father in heaven so that people will not be persuaded to glorify us, but rather they will glorify the giver of the good works, God. In glorifying God, they now have the same opportunity that we had. They have the opportunity to respond to his mercy personally and to be saved. And that's the point. That is the point. As our light so shines, we draw people to Jesus. As our light so shines, they too can be saved. They can know God. They can experience and live out the same life that we're living.
Paul, as a good pastor, desired to see his flock experience the fullness of a relationship with God. But Paul also had great love for his countrymen, the Israelites, and expressed great sorrow and continual grief in my heart because of their rejection of the gospel. So in part, I believe his pleading with the Romans to offer their bodies as living sacrifices is also based on his belief that the Gentile church would play a part in Israel being saved, that even the children of Abraham may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In the Apostle Peter's first letter, in the second chapter, verses 4 through 6, he says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you know that if you believe in Jesus and have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, that you are a priest? When you came to church this morning, you were thinking, I'm a priest. (laughs) Did you look for those tassels and the robe to put on? (laughs) Well, you are. But it's not because you've gone to seminary or have served in the mission field or because of any material qualification that you could list. It's simply by virtue of our belief and relationship to Jesus. We are now part of his temple, holy and acceptable to God. Our service, the offering of our bodies as living sacrifices, they are spiritual sacrifices, proclaiming the good news of God's love and mercy and forgiveness as demonstrated by the service of Jesus himself. Peter goes on to say, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter is driving the point home that Paul made earlier in that because of God's mercy, we now receive all the benefits that were once exclusive to Israel, God's chosen people, the people that God specifically chose through Abraham. However, in addition to having their benefits, we also now have their responsibilities. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the work of a priest, to serve God by praising him, worshiping him, proclaiming him to the world, and humbly approaching him regularly on behalf of ourselves and others in prayer. Paul says that this is our reasonable service. In answer to our first question, yes, as believers in Jesus, we are called to serve. In fact, we are called to be priests to an unbelieving world, equipped with God's wisdom and power by the virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We are called to believe that God's plan of salvation is big enough for an entire world of people and that by living in such a way that allows God's good works to be shown through us, that even people who appear to be our enemies and enemies of God, will be saved. 
Don't constrain your vision. God would never have you do that. Your neighbor or your coworker or the person you've bumped into on the street, God loves them. God wants them in his kingdom, regardless of what you think about them. If you love them, that's great. You're thinking with God's heart. But if you're thinking to yourself, they're never going to be part of the club, then you're missing the point. Why do we respond to God in this way? Why are we called to serve? It's our other question that we started teaching with. Why? Because it is our reasonable service. It's our reasonable service. It's not because it feels good. It's not because it's a popular thing to do or because I sound really spiritual when I talk about serving and worshiping God. It's because God has demonstrated his love for us through the person of Jesus Christ dying on a cross, bearing the sins of the world upon himself and rising from the dead, obliterating sin and the sting of death and making a way for all people to be God's chosen people. All people. For God so loved the world. This also answers the question as to whether God, Jesus, or the church are here to serve me. The answer to that is simply, they already have. God performed this little act called creation and continues to be personally involved in the lives of his creatures as seen throughout scripture and history. The book of Hebrews explains how Jesus is our high priest, serving at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, bearing the scars of his sacrifice as a continual reminder that his final atonement for sins was perfect and final. And if you were a Christian, because someone shared the gospel with you, then the church has served you and has offered its bodies as living sacrifices for your mercy. So the final question, how do we do this? How do we serve God? Well, you showed up today. That's the first part of it. Maybe this morning you said yes. Hopefully, I hopefully... Hopefully, every morning you wake up and you say, Holy Spirit, I am yours today. I surrender my life to you today. That's, that's the first part of how. Not my will, but your will, God. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have surrendered your life to him, then be reminded that you are a priest. Remind yourself of that. Wake up in the morning and say, I'm a priest. You're a priest. Take that responsibility seriously. It's not a joke. It's true. It's real. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ, you are a priest. Worship God with enthusiasm, knowing that he is blessed by a humble and obedient servant. If you come to church and you sit in the pew and you're kind of like, yeah, I don't like this song. Or, you know, drummer's wearing funny clothes. That kind of thing. (laughs) And he might be, you know. Nate's got some great shirts. But, you know, that's not worshiping God with enthusiasm. That's not worshiping God. That's tripping. (laughs) Worship God with enthusiasm. Know that he's blessed. Blessed not by your skills, not by your singing voice. and (laughs) No, not by that. Not by who you are, your experience, or any of that. He's blessed by your humility that you come before him that you're willing to surrender your life to him. That's what he's blessed by. He's blessed by your obedience. When he shows you something to do, when he says do this and you do it, when you do that, he's blessed by that. Some other things you can do, if you've done those things, if you've surrendered your life, if you ask the Holy Spirit to guide your life, 
if you believe in Jesus and you're living that and you really are taking this role of a priest responsibly, then be a peacemaker. Seek peace in your community, in your family, in your life, wherever you go. Be a seeker of justice. Don't stand for injustice wherever you see it. Speak up. Expect that God is hearing and responding to all your prayers. That's a big one. Expect it. You know, don't throw those prayers up like, Lord, you know, the thing and the thing, and I I think that thing I want to do, and I'm not sure exactly where I want to go or what that's going to be, but you know the thing that I'm praying about, Lord? Uh, I know you're not going to say anything, but here it is. There it is. You know it. It's on my heart. I don't even have to say it. You know, I mean, don't be lackadaisical with God. Pray specifically and expect he's going to answer prayers because he hears them. He might answer them no, (laughs) but... (laughs) But he's going to answer them. He will. I promise you, he answers your prayers. So expect him to. Don't try to be something that you're not. That offends God. Just try to be exactly who God designed you and respond to his calling on your life with expectation, obedience, and humility. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do those things. Just live those things out. If you haven't yet committed your life to Jesus, if you're here today and you don't even know why you're here today, and you're not someone who has made that commitment, who surrendered your life to Jesus, but you're feeling prompted to respond somehow, well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, that you are a God of mercy. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God that desires for us to come before you, to come forward to you, to know you, to live out a life spent with you, humbly and obediently, Jesus, and that that blesses your heart. Lord, your plan is awesome. We don't always understand it. We don't always see where it's going, but that's not the point. We're not supposed to. We don't have to, Jesus, because you have solved it. You've figured it out, Lord. Your mysteries are great, and they're amazing, And we can rest in the simple fact that you love us. That you died on a cross, you bore our sins, and you made a way for us to be chosen people. To be a royal priesthood. For those here today who have never committed their life to Jesus Christ, I just invite you right now, just in the quietness of your heart, to pray this prayer with me. Lord, I believe you are my Savior. Lord, I acknowledge that I've sinned. I acknowledge that there is sin in my life, meaning I just have missed the mark. I don't live a perfect life. I've hurt other people. I have unforgiveness in my heart, or, or I've done things that I don't feel good about. I don't feel right in doing those things because I know that they were wrong. So Lord, I come before you now, and I ask for you to be my Savior. That is, for you to take my sin, to forgive me of my sin, so that I may live with you so that I live under your covering, so that I may walk with you and surrender my life to you, and so that I may represent you in the world as you change my life from the inside out. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that we can't earn a way into relationship with you. We can't even work ourselves into a full and complete knowledge of you, God, because you are too great. So, Father, I pray now that we would worship you according to that gift that you've given us with enthusiasm, 
with love in our hearts, and with a desire to represent you as your priest to an unbelieving world. I pray this in Jesus' name.